Welcome to episode 209 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Nancy Stroer. She served in the Army in the late 80s and early 90s and talked about her experience of being a maintenance officer and getting to go overseas to Germany and what that experience was like having the Berlin Wall fall two days before she arrived in Germany and then supporting Desert Storm from Germany in providing equipment. We also talked about how she has a passion to help women veterans share their stories and how she wants to help more women share their stories in various medias. Specifically, she's giving a class later this week on book writing, so we'll talk more about it in the interview, but you can go check it out in the show notes. I also wanted to let you know I'm offering a course on November 16th on how to start your own podcast. I've had a number of people come up to me and ask me about how I started my podcast and things that I wish I would have known when I started podcasting. So I decided to create a one hour course giving you all the basics on how to start your podcast from how to register your podcast on Apple Podcasts to what equipment do you need to get started. So check out the link below to learn more about this class and join us at noon Pacific tomorrow, November 16th. And if you can't make it live, there will be a recording offered as well. Now let's get into this week's interview with Nancy. Welcome to the show, Nancy. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Okay, that is possibly the hardest question for me to answer. I joined in the mid 80s when I was a sophomore in college. And I went through ROTC, but I joined a little bit later, like a lot of the other students had scholarships from the beginning and went through all four years. But I was in it was like a job fair or like an activities fair or something. And I was just walking through it with a friend of mine in my sophomore year. And there was, you know, a table for each of the branch of service ROTC offices because our, our school had all four branches. And my friend that I was with is a Quaker. It's like super pacifist. <laughs> um, and we, I know I just stopped and I was talking to the army people and I don't remember who it was or what they said, but it was just intriguing to me. And, you know, I wasn't like drifting in my life or anything. Like I already had scholarships and grants. So I didn't need the money. It was just kind of like, huh, the army. And I told my friend, like, maybe I'll just join ROTC. And Quaker boy was like, no, you won't. And I was like, yeah, actually, I think I might. And I just kind of did it. Like I had no higher purpose. I had <laughs> nothing but a tiny bit of a dare. And that seems like such a terrible reason. But I mean, I think I knew on some level that it would, that I would enjoy it. I grew up in the South and, and being in the military is, is an honorable, good thing to do. Right. So, so like I found it appealing and I've always been kind of outdoorsy and, and like, you know, athletic and stuff. So like, I like to challenge myself physically. So I think I just kind of did it as you do when you're like 20 and impulsive, you know? Um, so like they kitted me out in uniforms. And I think one of the very first things that I did was a uh, land nav, like weekend land nav exercise they had in upstate New York in the middle of winter. Cause this was like the beginning of spring semester. Land nav is hard 
anytime, but when you're in the snow, <laughs> it was like super hard, but I just thought it was a blast. Like we were just stomping around in the woods, like trying to find tin can lids nailed to trees. I just thought it was a blast. And so like, I loved learning about leadership. I did really well. And I went on active duty after I got out. So like why I decided to join, like some people are so mindful and, and, you know, they think it through and I just kind of fell into it. And, um, and it was a good choice, right? Like, so was, there must've been some, on some level, I must've known that it would be good for me, but I really like, when I think back on it, I'm like, why in the world did I join the military? <laughs> I don't know. It was just meant to be. I think for a lot of people, it's like, you're in the right place, the right time, or like someone says something and it intrigues you. For me, I kind of felt like it was an accident. It was like, I started looking into it and then a bunch of my friends were looking into the military and my one friend told me about ROTC and then I found it and I was like, oh, I really like this. This is really fun. And so I I think it's normal. I just think that maybe the media portrays that like you have these like grandiose reasons that people join the military. And I don't think that's the reality for most people. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really even understand what the difference between an enlisted person and an officer was. Like, I didn't really understand what officer training meant right <laughs> I was just like so clueless but but anyway so sorry yeah. can't inspire people with my my um <laughs> deep mission in life or anything so what was your career field you said you did ROTC and what job did you end up picking yep so I studied psychology in undergrad and I wanted to go MI and the army told me to be a maintenance officer, but it was cool because they were going to send me to Germany, which is what I really wanted. Right. So um, I, I would have done anything to go to Germany. And I actually ended up loving maintenance. Our soldiers did everything. We were a really big company. Uh, we stayed pretty much in place and we had customers from all the whole surrounding area, like 60 different customer units. And this was at a time when um, there were a quarter of a million uniformed Americans in Germany. Like it was, it was big. Things were in full swing. So they repaired everything from small arms to tanks. Right. And we had a big supply organization there as well. So, so they always had work to do. And because of that, I think they got in trouble relatively less often than some of the combat units that were around us where, you know, if they weren't, you know, in the box doing training, then they were just rampaging around Germany. So it was good. I learned a lot. Yeah. Maintenance was a good field for me. It wasn't going to be a 20 year adventure, but I learned so much and, and I really like the kind of people who can figure out an engine, you know? There, there were some really clever people I worked with. So what year was it that you were in Germany? I got to Germany two days after the wall fell. So this was November, 1989. I'm, I'm an elder, old soldier these days. You said you were in college in the 80s. So I knew it was 80s, but I was like, I wonder if the wall had fallen. <laughs> so yeah, no, I mean, it was such an interesting time to be there. Like, like I said, you know, it was in full swing absolutely the most you know there's ever been of american military presence in germany at that time and then the wall came down and the mission changed abruptly you know like to how are we going to downsize a little bit or or rethink which was another good time to be a maintenance officer because we had a lot of work like going from community to community shutting them down right 
desert storm happen in the middle of that. But for the most part, uh, we just use that as a way to get rid of some excess equipment, to be honest. So you guys sent a lot of your extra equipment to Kuwait for a desert storm? I wrote a short story about this not too long ago because one of our jobs that we had to do, I know lots of your, your, the people that you interviewed deployed, you know, during OEF, OIF, I didn't have to deploy to desert storm, but in the lead up to it, all of the maintenance units had everything to, and the transportation people had everything to do with getting all that equipment and all those people, like the bulk of them left from Germany. We had to get all that stuff on the boats. Um, So, so yeah, Actually, I was working at the port in Antwerp in Belgium for a month or two before the ground war started or the air war even, I think, hadn't started at that point. And we put a lot of stuff on those boats that were never going to be super useful (laughs) in the desert. (laughs) There's a, a little like the last piece of equipment we put on this last boat was a broken forklift. We had to pick it up with a forklift and put it onto the boat. I'm probably telling state secrets here, but yeah, no, we got rid of some stuff. That's an interesting story. I think that there's so many like complexities and dynamics to war that people like never even think about. Cause like I showed up to Afghanistan in 2010 and there was all this stuff. Nobody really talked about how did it all get here? How did these bases get built? Mm-hmm. Like it, and it didn't really, it wasn't something I thought about. I was like, there's a base here. Okay. And I was an engineer, so I kind of should have thought about that. But it just wasn't something I was really thinking about. I just, and so it's really been interesting. I've interviewed a few like Desert Storm veterans and to talk about like what it was like to build up the base or to be at the base or even like how the equipment got there and the people got there and everything that went into that. Shipping is amazing. I didn't know anything about the transportation field until that point, but like, like obviously the the ports in Antwerp, like we had teams in Antwerp and Rotterdam and somewhere else I'm forgetting, you know, but all like up in the Netherlands where they do shipping, that's what they do, right? That's just all coastline and all really large scale. They have cranes that are strong enough to pick up a tank and you can move whole decks off of these ships and just plop a tank onto a lower deck. Cause I was like, how are we going to drive these things into these small spaces? But they just take the thing apart, like Legos, plonk the the tank in there and put the lid on. It's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And besides traveling for work, did you get to travel around Europe in your free time? Yeah, we didn't have to, like I said, our our unit was pretty stationary, um, but we did have to do like some team traveling, you know, for various jobs here and there. But really, like, we didn't go to the field an awful lot. So weekends were ours. And we, you know, my friends and I were all pretty much young single lieutenants, you know, with money in our pockets for the first time, you know, in Europe. So we all had bikes and we would just bike all over the place and land at festivals and drink beer. And, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty pretty good. (laughs) You know, I I think, like I said, I've listened to quite a few episodes of your podcast. And and, I mean, I don't listen to every single one, but it seemed to me like a lot of your interviewees are from more recent years, right? And y'all have had it so much harder than we did. And I was thinking, what can I say to someone thinking about joining the military now, like, that would be relevant. But then obviously, we're not in those wars at all, at all the same level that 
we were during your years. So maybe my experience will be a little bit more like women coming up now. I don't know, like obviously the world is a tinderbox all the time. So who the heck knows, but like we didn't have that fear or, or like, you know, that potential to be sent downrange at all hanging over our heads. Yeah, it changes. I guess because it when I joined, we were at war and you knew that you were going to deploy. And so, mm. yeah, it's totally different. It's really interesting. I think that all women veterans add value. And I think our stories are so interesting. And like, there's so many gaps in history. And like you said, a lot of my guests are like more current veterans because that's who I'm connected with. And it's harder to find the older generations, but I love hearing all the stories. I'm here for all the stories. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it's interesting. We we did some stuff and, and like, you know, things were happening and, and, you know, if you're in the military, you're not on the sidelines anymore. Even if you're not, you know, in a foxhole, the, the wall fell, you know, and within a week, East Germans were driving around and I, we, I was in the Southwest corner of Germany. Like somebody had to hold down the French border, right? Like had to be me. Um, but they like drove their raggedy little East German cars, like all over. Like if you were out on the Autobahn, like you could see them just driving around, waving at people. It was amazing, right? Just such an amazing time to be there. And then a few years after that, um, well, I mean, as all of the Eastern Bloc sort of fell apart, you know, there was the Bosnian conflict. There were all kinds of, you know, just things happening. And, and I was right there on the X for all of that. It was it was amazing. Yeah, I, I think that's just so cool because like you read about I read about it in a history book, like what happened in Germany, but it's nothing like being there and even hearing stories of people who were there just hearing about like people driving around and like how how different it changed Germany like overnight with the wall mm -hmm. falling out like literally overnight it was amazing so you said you were in Germany for three years then is that was that right well I I was one and done right I did three years and a little bit I was able to get my first master's degree while I was on active duty and I should have owed the army more time because of that but in the early 90s, they had what was called the Voluntary Early Release Program, and they were letting us all go, really, without having to, to finish our obligations. And um, I had a job offer in Germany. If I'd stayed in, I would have had to go back to my officer advanced course stateside. They didn't do anything like that overseas. And um, I just I was enjoying Germany more than I was enjoying being in the Army so I took a European separation and I stayed four or five more years. What was the difference of like being like you kind of have like it's different when you're a military member like in Germany as a civilian. Like what was that transition like or was it kind of smooth because you had already been there? Well, I mean, that part, like I didn't have the culture shock of, of trying to figure out a new country. Right. So that part was pretty seamless. And most of my good friends had not gotten out yet. So they were still there. Right. So I still had my crew around me, but it was still a big difference for lots of reasons. Right. So the job that I had when I got out was working for one of the universities that was contracted um, in Germany at the time. I think University of Maryland and Central Texas College have been around forever and still are big players in the 
in the education system for military people. Um, but there were used to be lots more and there were graduate programs and all sorts of things. Um, so anyway, I went to work for this graduate program, which was an education program. And it was very female dominated field and office. And these people were erudite and very proper. And um, here I was like, I didn't know how to walk in heels, you know, <laughs> I didn't even know how to dress, right? Like I didn't know how to wear civilian clothes and, and that was an adjustment for me. And I think, you know, I probably dropped an F-bomb or two in the office in the early days and didn't get quite the reception that I was used to. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, there's, I mean, you know, those are like little humorous adjustments, but, but there is, you know, for everyone, I think we, we lose a bit of our identity when we come out uh, and I had that adjustment same as everyone yeah so it sounds more like it was just like the normal things of transitioning and like finding your place in your new workplace and like not so many challenges of like being in Germany like you were like I already was in Germany so that part was pretty seamless yeah 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 it was more like you know we were consultants to military child care and we would go into a childcare center and, and like live and work with them for anywhere from two weeks to six weeks. Right. And, and the people who were educators advised on curriculum and child behavior and all sorts of things. And I was working my way towards another master's degree in early childhood education. But before I had credibility on that side of things, they put me uh, in the training program for leadership training for childcare administrators, most of whom are like came up out of the classroom and are brilliant teachers, but didn't necessarily know how to run teams of, you know, teachers and administrators themselves. And so I'd come in there and I, you know, I'd just be like, okay, so here's what we need to do. We need to just like cut through, you know, all the BS here and just talk about what's really going on. You know, my colleagues were like, I think that's not really our role. And I think we should maybe just take a step back and, and you know, earn a little trust with them first. And, you know, so like you can take the girl out of the army, but it's a little bit harder to take the army out of the girl. I learned that so many times. Yeah, that's so true. That's so funny because I, I had similar experiences. Like when I was doing volunteer work, I was like, we just need to get this done. We don't need to do anything else except get this done. And they were like, no, we're here to volunteer. And like, we want to do the social stuff. And I was like, but we just need to get this done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were like, that's not how it works. <laughs> so hard. It's so hard. People are so inefficient and social and friendly. <laughs> and for some reason, we're like, eh, we don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I probably rubbed a few people the wrong way. You stayed there for five years and then you, you've kind of made a big shift from what you're talking about to like what you're doing today. So like how, or maybe it's not as big of a shift. It just, I guess you're still teaching, right? Well, kind of. So I met my husband in Germany. He's American, but he was there to work. He's a veteran as well, but both of us were out by the time we met each other. Uh, his work was only going to let him stay there for, you know, a few years before they wanted him to go back to the States. So um, we got married in Germany uh, and then had to go back to the States. Uh, but I had gotten my second master's in early childhood education. And my first master's was in counseling, mental health counseling. So in all the time since then, I've always worked in, in and around the helping professions, I would say, sometimes teaching children, sometimes teaching teachers, 
um, sometimes working as a therapist, all sorts of things having to do with, you know, yeah, helping professions is the best way I can think of it because I've worked in community health and, and all sorts, but in and around all of that, I've always been a big reader. I have sought out jobs where I've had to speak and read and write a lot because I think, you know, what I always wanted to do was to write. It didn't seem like a, an option for me growing up. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And so I think even though, I mean, my dad's an artist, he has an MFA in fine art. So it wasn't like my parents didn't value creative work far from it, but like there definitely was the, the sense that you also have to be able to eat. And so like um, any art that you did, that's going to be secondary probably to keeping a roof over your head. So I never, I didn't go that route. You know, I took lots of writing classes in undergrad too and enjoyed them and did really well, but I just, I don't know. I just never, never got a degree in any of that, but I've always read a lot, a lot, a lot. And I've always written. So on a couple of tours, because my husband and I have mostly been overseas, except for that one little stint in the States in the late nineties, we've been overseas entirely. So for almost 30 years now. Um, whenever we've been in a place where I couldn't find paid work right away, I was working on stories too. So, so it's in and around everything, the bookishness. I really love that because it kind of shows that like you have this passion for writing, but then you have the challenge that a lot of writers face. You need to eat. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. you can also like, you could do one passion and you can also still do the writing. And like, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes people get this idea that like writers are a, that writers make a lot of money (laughs) and B (laughs) and B that like, that's all they do. Like they just write a book and then they make hundreds and, you know, and that just sustains them. And that's not the case for most writers. And And I think it's just really important to talk about, like, you can be a writer and you can do, you know, another job and just find time and the time that you can write and all the different things. Because Yeah, I mean, and you can like more than one thing, too. Like, for me, I've, you know, felt like there have definitely been different seasons in my life, too. I love teaching. I I love a preschooler. I think four-year-olds are the most incredibly intellectual humans right their brains are are so interesting to me it's not compatible with writing right so if I'm teaching I'm all in on teaching but I don't have a lot of juice left for words at the end of the day so it's it's usually one or the other for me but I love it all right and I think too if if you've lived lots of places and you've done different things then that just gives you more stories to tell later on right and so that's the season I'm in now is is working on the on, on getting some of it down. I feel like people should know some of the stuff that those of us who are out and about in the world have done. So I got to figure out a way to, to get that on paper. Yeah. And I know that you have a passion for women veterans telling their stories. So can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I feel like you sort of slightly alluded to like how important it is to share stories but I know there's a lot more to that yeah well I mean I think it's very similar to what you're doing with the podcast too is is just hearing what we've done somewhere in the distant past I heard this really annoying statistic that a very high percentage of of female veterans didn't even identify as being veterans I don't know what the percentage is but 
even 1% would get on my nerves, right? And it gets on my nerves because I totally understand it, right? Like it's so easy to just downplay what we've did. Okay, and I didn't shoot bad guys and therefore my service was a little less servicey than somebody else's. And so, so I think that a lot of women after they get out, they just kind of fade into the rest of their lives and, and um, don't talk about it. And I also think too, that most of us probably did face some sexism, uh, probably sexual harassment at the very least, you know, and other hard things that it takes a long time to process. And, and maybe somebody doesn't really want to revisit those kinds of experiences. And so they, they don't tell their stories, but I think it, it would be good, you know, for people to know what it's really like, which is why the podcast is, it just makes it so easy for people to just share, you know, without having to, to, to do the hard work of writing, which is, is, is a different sort of process altogether. But I want there to be stories too, right? I mean, if you think about any deployment, people always have a paperback stuffed in their cargo pocket, right? And um, it doesn't always have to be a Clancy, like it could be a story about a woman, airman, a Marine, you know, a soldier, anybody, right? But there just aren't, or if there are, they're written by men or they're written by someone who hasn't been in and it's missing that integrity that I think it would have if a woman had written it who was a veteran herself, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think you touched on like the podcast is like an easier way to share a story because it is. And I didn't just... mean that because obviously it takes no. this amount of courage I... for some people to come on here and tell their stories. Well, that is, yeah, that is true. But it it's kind of like a, well, we, I did a writing class with you and I learned about how hard it is to write and like how much goes into it of like, it's not just a story. You have to have like all these little pieces that go into it. And I've learned so much over the past year from taking the course with you and like reading different things and now reading books totally different because I'm always trying to figure out who the protagonist is and what their pain point is and and trying to catch what happens it's annoying but it's also really fascinating because it changes like how books are written and I've I've read so many books and I just always thought like the author just writes and the story comes out but there's so much more behind it that goes into it and like yeah, I think, I mean, sometimes it is really hard to, like, set up an interview and sh to share your story, but to write a book that, like, people want to read and it has, like, all the things that a book needs to be successful is really challenging. I don't think people know how hard it is. Yeah, well, I mean, you're such a workhorse. Obviously, you've got some experience under your, your belt now with this whole writing thing, too. Like, you're doing the work. Yeah, and you have to do that work and, and the processing. Like I told you before we started this interview, like the one thing I learned from the class was like, I'm not ready to like mm -hmm. share my story, especially in memoir. Maybe fiction would be better um, just because it's really challenging to like work through those emotions and to like not get triggered by something someone says or or even understanding like what you're actually trying to say like I'm trying to say this but it's not coming out that way and but I think it goes into like processing everything that you experienced and how hard that is especially yeah. as a woman yeah and I think you know if you want to tell a good story you have to kind of go there right and that's painful and difficult and um the tendency 
is towards self-preservation, right? You just pull your literary punches a little bit in order to gloss over the stuff that's too hard to think about in fiction or in memoir. I think, you know, it's, it's all, it's hard to do and yet really rewarding. I think, I mean, there's loads of, of programs out there to get veterans writing. And um, I think it's, you know, with the hope that it will alleviate some of the the things that people carry around. Yeah. So if someone wants to write a book and they've been thinking about it and they don't know where to start, what would you recommend that they do? Yeah. I mean, I did want to talk about this webinar that, um, that I'm hosting in November because it would be a good place for someone who's just kicking around some ideas to start. I'm teaching what's called a mini blueprint and I think that a person could use it to plan even a nonfiction article that they were writing about military service or a, just a small snippet of something that happened to them, even if they were fictionalizing it a little bit, like you could take one piece and just sort of test drive it. So the mini blueprint is a tool to see whether your idea has a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, whether you, it's got the legs to, to become something bigger. Um, it's also the kind of tool that a person who has done some sort of exploratory writing, or maybe even has a draft to sort of spot check it, to see whether it works, right? Like, can you boil it down? Cause the mini blueprint is only one page, right? And so you have to like distill your idea down into its absolute essence, you know? And if you can't do that, then probably it is still a little too fuzzy and it needs reworking. So you can use it to plan an idea. You can use it to revise. And then if you have a pretty good story that is polished, it's still a good tool to use if you're getting ready to pitch it somewhere, because again, you're going to need all of those short, pithy versions of your story to explain it to the kind of people who can put it into print. So, so I think that is a really good place for someone to start. And if any of your listeners are interested, um, this particular webinar is hosted by uh, a company that I do some book coaching for called Author Accelerator, and it's on the 17th of November at 9 a.m. Pacific time, which is noon on the East Coast of the U.S. But if, if you've um, signed up for the webinar, you can also ask for a replay if that particular day and time doesn't work because I understand most people will be working during those hours. Yeah, and we're going to link to it in the show notes. So if people want to sign up, it'll be easy to find. And is there anything that we missed? Oh, we could talk forever. I mean, I did want to say that this particular webinar that I'm hosting, I'm gearing it towards women writing military stories. Obviously, it's a tool you can use for any kind of story. If you're writing romance novels, rock on, you know, you can use this too. Horror, you know, slasher, thrillery things. Also it works, you know, but, but for me, like, because I selfishly want there to be more women out there writing military stories, I'm going to slant it that way. And so um, I would just encourage any woman who's thinking about writing about her experiences, even in fictional form to come along and, and just see what it's about. Yeah, that sounds great. And I love that you're trying to help more women share their stories. I found a lot of healing and telling my story and I I wrote an article for the war horse about my experience of being in the mm, military I read it yeah I read that one 
when I sent the original one, the publisher was like, you need to show more, like, right here. And I was like, I kind of glossed over that. So when you were talking about that, I was like, oh, yeah, I did that. And she was like, this part right here, you need to go deeper. And I was like, no, I skipped over that. And so it was kind of funny because she knew exactly where I hadn't shared what I really thought because I was like, I don't want to share that part. See that publicly. Yeah. <laughs> So, and you need someone like that to help you. I, that's one of the things I've learned in like the writing process is like you can write a book by yourself, but you need someone else to help like point out the areas that you're like, think you're going really deep and you're not even going deep at all. And like how those people like editors and book coaches, how valuable they are in making your story better. Even A Girl's Guide to Military Service, my editor really helped me like refine things and change things and dive deeper in areas where I and I couldn't have done that by myself the first draft was horrible which is like the way all I think all well I mean nobody (laughs) writes a pretty first draft and so yeah so it's like you've got to get that help to get there and it's it's really important to use the resources that are out there yeah yeah just read those stories I want to have those books in my cargo pocket and pull them out when things get boring. I've read a few good books. I'll have to share them with you by women veterans. Oh, do, because I'm trying to put together a resource sheet, like a one sheet for people, like some places they could submit their stories or, or, you know, good novels and memoirs by women who served or, or even spouses, you know, or, or kids who grew up in military communities, people who are military adjacent as well are doing wonderful things for military fiction out there too. So I don't mean to say that it's only for veterans because obviously there's loads of overlap too. Like you can be a veteran and a spouse and have grown up as a military. Right. You're like, I'm like, we're all, all those things, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing not only your experience, but about the work you're doing today and your passion to help women veterans share their story. And you know, because you listen to the podcast that I'm going to ask, what advice would you give to the next generation of women who are looking to serve? Oh, wow. I mean, I think that's such a heavy responsibility, right? But I would tell these young women to think about it more carefully than I did. For sure. You know, I'm just a lucky little Forrest Gump kind of person who fell into all these things, but uh, it it doesn't always go that well for people. And so I think do your homework, but also we're allowed to make mistakes. We're allowed to change our minds, right? So even if you're just sort of teetering on the edge, like you could just try it, right? You could just serve your enlistment and, and, have the experiences that you have. If you're just a soldier or just an airman or just a a sailor, you know, you may feel like what you're doing is not significant, but you know, you're part of, you're, you're not on the sidelines anymore, right? You're, you're a small cog, but you're part of the whole machine. And, um, the world is, is an interesting big place. And I think, this is one of the ways that you can can get off the sidelines and into the game, right? Like e- even if it's small, right? You're, you're part of something. And uh, even if you don't realize it at the time, I think later on, you'll look back on it and say, that was a cool thing that I did. So I, I would say, even though my experience was hard, 
And I, I don't know if I would have the same response for my own girls. I've got two young women of my own. Like, I don't know that I would push them to join, but I would say, you know, these days, especially anything could happen anywhere, but it's a little less scary right now. Please let me be right about this. You know, um, maybe, maybe you should do it. Yeah, I think it's really hard, but I think, I guess I want to help people who like have that like teetering, like if you have that drive and you're looking to join the military, then I think that you should go and do it. I just wrote an article on Military Families magazine about how I don't think that veterans should be forced to like push their children to join the military Mm -hmm. because I feel like sometimes there's this like well, you serve, so your children should serve. And it's like, no, I served. I know what the military is like, so I'm going to tell them the truth of the experience and not try and uh, push them to do something, especially if I don't think it's right for them. Yeah, I think I know many more veterans who hesitate when asked that question than the ones who are quick to say they should do it, right? Like most veterans I know are like, hmm, I'm not so sure. Yeah, because I think it has to be the right, fit for the person and then like the benefits if you're joining to get the GI Bill or and like you need that lots of situations change like the military can change your life and change your future and then that can affect your children's future and the opportunities mm-hmm. that ha- they have so I think it's really hard to tell it's, it's like a unique situation you wouldn't tell the same kid the same thing and if you're on that teetering edge I think it's worth it to go and do it yeah I mean I think if you have that little glimmer that little sense that maybe this is the right choice for you then maybe you should just do it thank you again for being on the podcast I really appreciate your time thanks for having me this has been a treat so fun so good to see you again thanks so much for listening to this week's interview I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode and I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.